0: It's a number of years ago that Jody, my wife, and our two little kids, Jason was two and a half and, Stace and Jessica was one. They're both here this morning, a little bigger than they were back then. We arrived in Kenya as new missionaries. They had learned by then that you don't put the doctor at the hospital if you expect them to learn language. So they sent us 25 miles down the road below Tenwick to a little place called Cabasone. Tenwick was remote Kabesone was way beyond remote I remember the day we arrived we had our suitcases that's all we were going to have for our earthly belongings till the shipment arrived months later we walked into the cinder block house and i can still remember the look on Jody's face because as we walked in this little two bedroom thing down in the corner of the compound she looked down and the walls were green The floor was orange, and the curtains were pink. The nationals that lived there had a whole different idea of interior decorating than she had grown up with. We had the challenges of just living in a remote area. We had electricity only one hour a day. Of course, little kids, you want to give them a bath just about every day, and and we only had that one hour of electricity, and there was this water heater that sat in the kitchen. It was a small thing, set on a shelf, but we never got any hot water out of it, no matter what. Uh, the, you know, electricity come on, and this was a 220 water heater. You'd think it'd heat up, and Jody would have to boil water and put it in the bathtub and give the kids a bath and... Finally, I, I, you know, I thought, well, I needed a little diagnosis on this, so I started feeling the tank, it. yeah, it felt warm at the bottom, but at the top, it wasn't where the water came out, and finally, I, uh, I, I got some tools and took out the heating element. See, we had a, our water coming directly out of the river. It, it, it's chocolate water. I don't know if you've ever drank chocolate water, because it rained, it was muddy, and so when I pulled out that heating element, what I found out was that the hot water heater was filled with mud within an inch of the top. I have a picture of home with me of a stick pulling mud out of the hot water heater. And surprisingly enough, about three months into our time there, we were able to get hot water. In the refrigerator, in the lit kitchen, we had a refrigerator. Now, it seems counterintuitive But it ran by kerosene. I never completely understood how you could heat to cool. And uh, one of the other missionaries, the only other missionary there on the compound, came down and explained to me how the kerosene refrigerator worked. And there was this big pan underneath that you filled with kerosene, and kind of like this super kerosene lantern. It had a chimney that went all the way up the back and this big wick. And he'd show me how to take it out and trim it and make sure that it was doing right. And and it cooled pretty well. I mean, we could keep food in it. The problem was, and he informed me of this, that every once in a while, the refrigerator would smoke. White smoke would just start pouring out. We didn't have a smoke detector, but you didn't need one. It it was there. You could see it. And and as he gave me instructions, he said, Now, Dave, when that happens, you probably got to go in and retrim the wick a little bit, try to adjust it, take care of that problem. Now, he said, Now, there's one thing you need to be careful about. If the smoke turns black, watch out. I said, why? He said, well, that means that the flame is starting to go down in the tank or that the soot in the chimney is catching on fire and burn the whole house down. So as Jody accuses me all the time, all the bad things happen when I'm gone. I had gone to take a patient up to Tenwick that was sick, and, 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 and she all of a sudden looked, and the kerosene refrigerator was starting to pour out black smoke. So she got down on her knees and looked, and sure enough, the flames were dipping down towards the the big uh, metal flat canister that contained all this kerosene. And go, kind of scared, what do I do? Dave's not here. She got down on her knees and started to pull this thing out gently, and all of a sudden, the flames hit, came out through the fill spout right up towards her face. She jumped, the kerosene went everywhere, and the whole kitchen was on fire. So she did the best thing she could. She grabbed the broom and started to beat it out. You ever try to beat out a kerosene fire with a broom? Then she had a torch. So she grabbed the other end of the broom, trying to take this big thing of kerosene that's flaming out the back door. The kids are in bed already. She's scared to death. And Jason still can remember Mom looking like a witch with a flaming broom, carrying this kerosene thing out the back. She ran around the other side of the house, got him. He's, you know, two and a half years old in his, his footy pajamas and saying, Jason, run up there as quick as you can to Aunt Lita's. the house is on fire. And that was up through the dark about a 100 yards in an African night with no lights outside except a few stars. And, and he just starts chucking up there, gets about 20 feet away, and he turns around and he says, Mom, I'm in my pajamas. <laughs> she thought he was going to say, I'm so scared of the dark, I can't go. And they got the fire out. I remember coming back from the hospital, and there was Jody sitting there covered with soot, the kitchen's black, and uh, they had gotten the fire put out. That was what missionary service began like. Not just home situations. We were in language school trying to learn a tonal language. Vowels weren't A-E-I-O-N-U. They were A-E-O-U. Uh, you were learning the sound and you put seven parts of speech in one word and, you know, it's tonal. You went up and it meant one thing, you know, and we were trying to grasp this, take care of the kids, live in our little pink, green and orange house. And then they had the clinic. There was a clinic there. Now, there was a nurse, a missionary nurse some national staff, but they had given strict orders. You don't call Dr. Stevens unless it's an emergency, a real emergency, because he's here to learn language. So when you saw somebody coming from the clinic, you knew the world had just about ended down there. And one day, uh, as happened, somebody came running up the hill out of breath, one of the national helpers, Dr. Stevens, come quickly, come come quickly, please, please come quickly. And I I rush out of where we were studying language and ran down the hill and walked in, and there on just a, a wooden table is laying a man with his head hanging over the end, and his head is big as a basketball. His eyes were swollen shut. Uh, You could hardly see his features. His neck was clear out beyond his chin. He was just barely moving any air. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what in the world? is? I've never seen anything like this in my life. And it was obvious that we need to get him some air because he's just barely moving any. Well, we didn't have oxygen. We didn't have an E-tube. We didn't have a laryngoscope. We didn't. This little clinic in the middle of nowhere. So I said, get me something that cuts. They ran out of the room, came back in. They had one hemostat and a used number 15 blade that they had put in some solution to clean. I'd never done an emergency tracheostomy. That was my first. They didn't give us that opportunity in my family practice residency. And so I began... Cutting down and the good thing was he didn't bleed because there was so much swelling, but you couldn't feel anything. You couldn't feel his larynx, you couldn't feel any landmarks, and I was just praying and cutting, and he's getting bluer and his eyes are bulging, and and finally I get in. I knew I was in because he blew mucus and blood all over me. And then I thought, now what do I do? I've got this whole how do I keep it open? You remember where they say, you know, you can use the big pin? You can. So I pulled the big pin out of my pocket, took out the metal part, and stuck this thing down into it. Now, you try breathing through a brick pin and see how much air you can get. But at least he was getting a little. Now, we're 25 miles from the hospital on terrible roads. And I said, you know, this is all we can do. I've got air for him. I don't know what the problem is. He needs to be intubated. We need to get him stabilized. Go get the Land Rover. Well, they had a little short wheel-based Land Rover. And so they brought it around, we picked him up in the blanket, I'm holding his head, trying to keep the pin there, as we ease him into the back, it just had a metal floor and it was short, so they eased him in and his legs are straight up in the air, his head's next to the back seat, and I'm kneeling there beside him trying to hold this pin in place, making sure he's getting some air, and tell the driver, get there as quick as you can, and he took me at his word, off he went, on these mud rut roads, we'd hit a big bump, this guy would bounce off the floor, the pin had come out, I'd yell, slam on the brakes, and he had slammed his head, had hit the seat. I'd get the hemostat out, try to get the pin in. I prayed every minute of that trip. And I didn't have enough faith to get us to the hospital. I just prayed the next little village we were going to go through. Lord, get me to the next one, get me to the next one. Sure, this guy was going to die. And finally, we pulled into the hospital, still with the pin in his neck. He's still alive. Take him to the ER, get the laryngoscope, stick it in, Intubate him. And as I do, I look down and there on his tonsil was the diagnosis. Big, black, eschar. First case of anthrax I'd ever seen. The story came out, Cal had died, hey listen, a lot of good meat, we don't want to waste that, so he and a couple guys decided they would butcher it and eat it, and as the Kipsigees sometimes do, he ate some raw liver with the spores on it, the other two guys were already dead, he was the only one alive. Missionary medicine, missionary living, challenges. Let me tell you something. We were so happy, despite all those things. Well, where does that come from? What does it take to make a missionary? How can God give you joy and fulfillment in the midst of all those issues that you may face if you end up on the field? If you turn in your Bible over to Matthew 16, 24, I think we'll find the secret. Christ has finished his earthly ministry. He's just about to go to the cross. He spent three years with his disciples, and now he is giving them the course summary in this verse. He's telling them what it means to be a true disciple. And he says this, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny himself. You know, as you go down the road of life, I I think uh, mentally there's some signs we can hold up. God telling us what we've got to do on this spiritual journey that we take with him. And when we talk about denying ourselves... I think the road sign he hangs up in front of us, the road sign we see is this, yield. Yield. You've seen lots of signs like that. Yield. Let him have control of your life. Stories told of the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant was an obscure general. Nobody even knew who he was. He commanded a little group that was in the Cumberland River Valley, and his task was to attack Fort Donaldson. Uh, The guy that he was fighting against, the Confederate general in the fort, didn't handle the thing very well, came out of the fort to fight him, was defeated, retreated back into the fort. And then he sent him a note, and he asked him, what were the terms for surrender? And Grant wrote back to him, No terms except unconditional, immediate surrender can be accepted. That phrase, because this opened up the Cumberland Valley for an invasion into the South, was in all the newspapers across. In fact, Abraham Lincoln said of Ulysses S. Grant, his U.S. Grant stood for unconditional surrender. That became his nickname for the rest of the war, and even in the days when he was the president. That's what God's asking for us. That's what that deny yourself, what that yield means. It means unconditional surrender. God can do a better job in our lives than we can do ourselves. He designs us. He knows us. And he wants us to let him have control of our life. But increasingly, because of our culture, there's this narcissistic tendency. It's not about God. It's about me, my needs what's best for me? What's best for my family? I saw this as we were on the mission field. We used to have a lot of students, residents, and interns come out. And in the early days, they'd come out and say, boy, I'm here just to find out what God has for me. I hope he'll speak to me during this time and give me direction of whether I should be a missionary. That then it began to change. And I noticed that students and residents and doctors were coming out and saying, well, tell me about how much vacation time you get. and Where do your kids go to school? And what's the salary, by the way? And before long, I realized I was giving a job interview. Let me let you in on something. God doesn't give job interviews. He says, unconditional surrender. <laughs> you don't dictate the terms. You, you, don't, you don't say, if this, if that, if this, I will. You unconditionally surrender to his will. It's easy to want to dictate conditions to God, and, and I've been through that. I was sharing a couple days ago. Uh, one of the big issues for Jody and I was the kids' education. It just, at that time, they were sending children from the, the mission station there off to boarding school when they were seven years old, second grade. I just couldn't, Jody and I just had a hard time with that. It's back in the many years ago when homeschooling was just beginning. And I remember we had long discussions and what what were other options and what could we do and all those things. And finally, God said to me one day in my devotions, he said, David, do you think I can take care of everything but your children? Oh, man, that hit me right between the eyes. He says, I love them and care for them more than you do. I've got a plan. At the right time, I'll let you in on all the details. But you can trust in me. And I, like Abraham, had to take my children and put them up on the altar. And God did have a plan. And it worked wonderful. We homeschooled and had a one-room schoolhouse and sent the kids off to boarding school when they wanted running to go. And it was a wonderful experience for them. And the thing that I thought was the the, the deal-breaker was one of the wonderful blessings that God gave to us when we were overseas. That unconditional surrender has to come before we know what all it means. That's hard for us. It's hard because we are... Achievers, those of us in healthcare, we are ones that make decisions. We are ones that 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 step out and plan and and have the details and make a good decision. And, and the tendency is we want to control all this stuff and make sure it's going to turn out right, whether we're taking care of a patient or whether we're taking care of our own lives. So the question is, what's What's important to you? What needs to be put on that altar? Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's fame. Maybe it's prestige. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's children. Maybe, I don't know what it is, but God says, this is the terms, immediate, unconditional surrender. See, we unwisely think that God needs our help. He can't figure all this out, and we got to help him and uh, advise him on this. In Matthew ten thirty four and 39, he says this, "'Don't think I've come to make life cozy. I've come to make a sharp knife cut between son and father, daughter and mother, bride and mother-in-law. Cut through these cozy domestic arrangements and free you for God. Well-meaning family members can be your worst enemies.'" If you prefer father or mother over me, you don't deserve me. If you prefer son or daughter over me, you don't deserve me. If you don't go all the way with me through thick and thin, you don't deserve me. If your first concern is to look after yourselves, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and you'll find me. Wow, what a promise. This is not only the way to service, this is the way to fulfillment, this unconditional surrender. So how do we do it? Well, some of those who've done it before give us some great advice. Roland Allen, who was a missionary, he said this, Missionary zeal does not grow out of intellectual beliefs, nor out of theological arguments. It grows out of love. Henry Martin said this, The Spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. In 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So what this is saying is, the way to surrender is we love God more than anything else. Simple as that. It's to fall so deeply in love that we would lay down our life for him. That's something that can happen at a service like this. It can be something that happens over time. It's often something that is a continual process. I remember times when I've come to that point of surrender and renew that in my life, but God brings me back to it. We, We went and served on the mission field for 11 years. One of the questions you may ask is, what are you doing back here? It was in 1990, God began speaking about me leaving the mission field to me. It was much harder than us going because I loved being a missionary. It would just fit me. It was my personality. It was my skill set. I loved the evangelism. I loved the the medicine. I loved all the other things I got to do, and I I was good at it. And and I was a leader at our hospital, and my mentor, who had, had mentored me for over 10 years and had a lot of physical problems, he was stepping back. I was stepping up. He wanted to just practice medicine. I was, you know, in all these dreams and hopes. Dave Stevens is here, and Tenwick will go forward now because he's the leader. He's the anointed one. And then all of a sudden, God's began saying to me, David, I've got something else. I said, no, Lord, I don't want to hear that. You don't understand. There's lots of doctors in the United States. Lord, you don't understand. I don't want to take my kids back there. That's the jungle. I want to keep them here. <laughs> God, you don't understand. You don't, what will people think? And we argued for almost a year. I remember when I went in finally, and I had prayed through, and I went in to tell Ernie, my, my mentor, Dr. Ernie Sturry, my father figure, somebody I'd known for over 30 years, and I was telling him I was going to leave him with everything, and I was going. I felt like I had I was going in to tell my dad I was on drugs and I'd gotten two girls pregnant. <laughs> I mean, it was awful. Both of us were crying. He couldn't understand it. If you go read the book, Miracle at Tinwick, and tells his biography, he talks about the, the, the depths of despair that came into his life, realizing it here he thought he had mentored me, and I was ready to step in, and here I was leaving. It was, on un- I couldn't see the end of the road, I just knew that's what God was telling me to do. Now looking back, I can see it. <laughs> All the people that God's given me the opportunity to influence. One, one of the reasons we have this conference today... It's because I surrendered back then. It was on a trip with people from the church here into Zambia that we came up with the idea of this conference and bringing everybody together, of nurses and pharmacists. And, and I wonder if that would have happened if I hadn't said, yes, Lord, unconditionally, I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. People are going to not think good of me, but that's what you're telling me to do. I had to put missions on the altar. Christ is either Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. And if we're going to serve him, we need to understand that denying self requires us to give up everything we want to get everything he has. Secondly, that verse talks about taking up the cross taking up the cross. If we were seeing a sign on the road of life, I think it would say this, caution, rough road ahead. <laughs> that's what he's saying. He doesn't pull any punches when he talks about being a disciple. He says, it's going to be tough, better buckle up. First Peter 2.21 says this, this is the kind of life you've been invited to, the kind of life Christ lived. He suffered everything that came his way. So you would know that it could be done and also know how to do it step by step. Soon after, i have been at Tenwick for a few years and very involved in the ministry, uh, you begin to understand there's a lot of challenges on the mission field, and they're all not just medical. We had a a member of parliament, he represented our area, who hated our hospital. His name was Arapsalat. He had a lot of power. He was high up in government. In fact, he was in charge of the security forces in the whole area, uh, in the whole country, Uh, kind of a cabinet post in the administration as well as being a member of parliament. I remember one day his half-brother, born to one of his father's other wives, uh, came into the hospital, he turned a tractor over, he had a subdural hematoma. I took him to the OR, got out the subdural hematoma, stayed up nights with him, nursed him, took care of him, and saved his life. One day, a Rapsalot showed up at the hospital, personally, took him out, and wouldn't pay his bill. Guy was rich as all get out. But what was finally the icing on the cake is he started spreading rumors about the hospital. We all work for the CIA. We had guns hidden in the river. One day, the CID, which would be like our FBI, showed up at the hospital, searched the hospital, searched our houses, confiscated my ham radio. Obviously, I was talking to the CIA on my ham radio, one of my hobbies. It was the only way we could talk to our family was through that ham radio. Every Saturday night, I'd get on the air so I could talk to our family. And here he took it. Things aren't promised to be easy. I, my tendency was to say, God, this isn't fair. What's going on? I, I'm laying my life down for these people. I'm coming over here and working to serve them, and this guy, you know, is doing all these terrible things to us and spreading rumors and causing distrust. And, 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 and Lord, you know, I finally began praying, God, either change him or remove him. God did both. He got throat cancer. Isn't that poetic justice? He was spreading all these lies. Went to England, got treatment, came home, got worse. He was on his deathbed, and he called all the missionaries and church leaders in to ask their forgiveness and ask them to lead him to Christ. But, you know, we didn't see that end of the road when we were going through that that rough road, that, that, that the bumpy area, that... Taken up the cross that God talks about. God doesn't pull any punches. There's going to be burdens to bear, and the job still needs to be done. And missions is harder than anything I think we've done before. As we look at the Muslim world and the Hindu world and the areas that are still unreached, it's not going to be easy. But let me remind you of something. If you got your Bible turn to Matthew eleven twenty eight through thirty. It's, it's a familiar verse. It says this, Come to me, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My pastor spoke at chapel on CMDA last week on that verse, and he gave me a new insight I had never had before. He says, you know, the first time you look at that it says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me And the first place where it says it will give you rest. That first rest, actually in the original language, refers to salvation. Come unto me, all you weary and burdened, and I will give you a transformed life, a relationship with me, salvation through my son. Then it goes on and says, take my yoke. Well, that's an interesting concept. Most of us haven't had much experience with yokes. Yoke gives you the idea of a burden. That's what oxen put around their neck. That's how they pull heavy loads is with a yoke. And all of us have yokes, don't we? We have physical yokes. Some of us are dealing with illnesses, chronic illnesses. Some of us have emotional yokes, heavy pains and anguish that we've had. Some of us have relational yokes, relationships that are broken with family, with friends, with others. All of us have burdens. But as you look at that, you need to understand the concept of what the yoke actually was. Because back in Israel, when you were getting a yoke for your oxen, you didn't go to the Walmart to get it. You went down to the yoke maker, and you took your ox with you. And he came in and put the ox there in the shop and custom-fitted the yoke around the neck of the oxen. Because if he didn't do that, it would chafe, it would cause pain, it would make it so that the ox could not pull well, couldn't handle the weight. He custom fitted that yoke. And what Christ is saying there to us, and this is a very important concept, not only are we going to have the burden, but he's designed the burden for us. He's designed the yoke to help us pull that burden that difficulty. And then he says you're going to find rest for your souls again and if you look at the original language it means refreshment, joy, fulfillment. Is what that rest means in that context. What he's saying to us is yes, there's going to be difficulties, but it's not by chance that they've happened. They've happened to help you grow to be more like me and I have fixed that yoke so you can take care of these burdens. God has designed a life specifically for you. He says over in Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you. Yes, when you get to those burdens and difficulties, you know that God has designed you for them. I saw this when we got to the mission field. I was, you know, went to University of Louisville here at a family practice residency and was involved some in leadership and, and you know, my residency, chief resident, stuff like that. But I got to Tinwick and all of a sudden there were all these things that needed to be done that I would never done before. Management, administration, fundraising, program development, uh, how are we going to have electricity, where are we going to deal with sanitation, all these issues they don't prepare you for in residency. But, you know, I got that yoke on my neck, and it felt so good. It just became so clear to me that God had designed me for this. I love solving those problems. He had brought me there specifically with that interest in those abilities and a background that I didn't see and nobody else saw, but all of a sudden it was just that yoke went on, and it was wonderful because God had designed me for it. The yoke fit. And Luke adds something else to that. He says, take up your cross daily. i got good news for you. The yoke you're wearing right now fits. And what God's taking you through right now, the the difficulties, the problems, it's all preparation for what he's going to prepare you for for later on. That yoke he's designed for you is something that we should put on, welcome it every day. Unconditional surrender to do the will of Christ starts where you are now, bearing the burdens that he's given you today. I remember in residency, you know, it's it's interesting to look back and you see these things. You didn't understand what God was doing when they happened. But in residency, my last year, we were down in Georgia. We went over across the border into... Uh, Alabama and you spend a half day a week as a senior resident running a clinic in a very remote area. It was called Hertzboro. It's a little southern town, deep south. People down there don't talk like you and me. And uh, it was a great experience because you're only doc at the, the clinic. There was no supervision. You were just out, uh, you know, those were in the old days. And uh, I go down and it was, you know, 35, 40-minute drive to get down to Hertzboro. One day I was at the clinic seeing patients, somebody came running frantically in the door and said, Doctor, come quickly, a little girl's been hit. And I went running down the street, two blocks away, and there was a little five-year-old girl laying in the street dead and a frantic young African-American man beside her. He drove the garbage truck in town. And he is backing up the truck, and she rode her bicycle out the driveway right behind his truck, and he ran over, right over her head. It wasn't very pretty. Just about the time I got there and, and got enough of the story, and he's saying, I didn't mean to. I'm so sorry. It was an accident. I, she just came out of nowhere. All of a sudden, the little girl's father came. He was chief of police in Hertzboro. And he totally lost it. He started cursing. He reached in, pulled out his gun, said, I'm going to kill you, you son of a... And all of a second, in the middle of nowhere, was this life and death crisis. And I'm thinking, you know, we're going to add one tragedy to another, he's going to kill this guy. I just jumped in front of this guy, between him and the guy he was going to kill, And we had this standoff for about three or four minutes to two other policemen ran up and subdued him and took the gun away. I remember shaking in my boots after this was over. (laughs) I look back now and realize God was fitting the yoke for things he wanted me to do later and the situations were going to be so dangerous and so unpredictable. And here was a little on-the-job training, a little yoke fitting. See, that daily means God has given you experiences now to prepare you for what he has for you later. C.T. Studd put it this way, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great to make for him. Robert Shannon put it this way, never pity missionaries, envy them. They are where the real action is, where life and death and sin and grace and heaven and hell converge. And then Luke sums it up in chapter fourteen, twenty seven, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It's part of the job description. Then the last thing is this. That verse goes on to say, Follow me. If anyone would come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I've had an opportunity to go up to the White House a couple times. I spoke uh, in Congress to congressional leaders on human cloning a few years ago, and the president was having a news conference, and Joni Erickson Tata was there, and Chuck Colson and I, and we had been doing this briefing, and and they invited us to come up to the news conference. It's interesting to go in the White House. I could tell a whole story about that. But I noticed one thing as we came up to the gate. There was this sign up there. It said, stop, check with the guard before proceeding. I think that's what God's saying to us about following. He's saying this, stop, check with God before proceeding. I think that's giving us a, an idea of what he means by following. Because in Luke 9, 57 and 62, it says this, And they were walking along the road, and a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Well, foxes have holes and birds have air, have nest, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Well, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What God is saying is this. This is not something he is sending us out to do alone. In fact... He's saying it's not something where he's just going to be beside us. (laughs) He says, no, I'm going to be ahead of you on this one. You're going to be following me. We need to be where Christ would be, doing what Christ would do. That's what he's asking of us. First we get close to the Master's heart. Then we can get close to the Master's mission." So where would Christ have you go? What, what, what kind of places does Christ frequent? There's a lot of it in the Bible. I've had a lot of experiences where Christ has taken me into places I never imagined where he would go and where I really wasn't so anxious to be there. Let me walk with you into a prison in Zambia in Loose Sockets, the main prison there in the country. It was designed during colonial days for 400 people. There's 2,000 prisoners in this prison, and you're going in with a medical team to take care of them. They've had no medical care. There's no doctor, nurse, no kind of clinic in the prison. Never has been. These people are desperate. You see patient after patient with scabies. Why? Because they have so little room in the prison that they put close to 100 prisoners in a room designed for 25. It's so tight in there that at night what they do, and they get locked up for 12 hours, is you have to sit down and put your legs around the guy in front of you, and that's how you sleep at night. People have never had their, their wounds and injuries taken care of. I still remember preaching to that horde of people there. I remember one of my friends that I took with me, Steve Furr from Alabama, and one day we asked him to preach. I'll never forget the sermon. He had met a little boy. His name was Sammy This prison's just for men, and here's an eight year old boy in this prison for men. He had stolen a pair of shoes. He had already been there four years. No lawyer to get him out, no possibility of a trial. And Steve had led this little eight year old to Christ when he came through the clinic. And Steve stood up in front of these people and talked about how this boy needed a father, how dangerous it was for him in this prison. He was an orphan, and he had told stories of the things that had happened to him from all the men in that prison. And Steve talked about not only did Sammy need a father, they needed a father as well. And used him as an analogy of their relationship with God. And dozens of 50, 60, 80 men came forward to accept Christ. And then at the end, Steve turned and said, this boy really needs to be a father, needs a father. Which one of you are going to be his father in this prison? That's where Jesus would have been, doing just that. Right, let's go back last summer, summer and a half ago, looking back a year and a half ago, I was in Nairobi. We were in Kibera. Kibera is the largest slum in Africa. Come on, you can go with me. You're going to need to roll up your scrubs because as we walk in, you can't drive. We've got about a half to three quarters of a mile of walking down this sewage-flowing road. In fact, you better watch your step because the... The way they do sanitation is you defecate on newspaper and throw it into the path from your house. So you better watch where you put your feet. We're going to have our clinic today in a bordello. In fact, we'll be preaching from the stage where the girls used to dance. See, that's the kind of place Jesus goes. People are going to come to Christ today. They're going to find health today, but it's not going to be in some beautiful church. It's going to be in the midst of despair. This is the area where the riots of Kenya were focused when all this ethnic conflict broke out. We're going to walk by places where people were killed on that path. See, that's where Jesus would go. Or Let's travel up to Sudan. I remember going up there and... There was an epidemic of relapsing fever. I had to go get my textbook out. What's relapsing fever? I don't remember learning that one. It's a spirochete disease. It's only found in Ethiopia and Sudan. The spirochete actually bores through the skin. It's due to a lack of cleanliness and there's huge famine going on. Food drops from the UN and this epidemic is wiping people out. Normally has about 10% mortality rate. It was having close to 40 to 50% mortality rate because of the malnutrition. It's not easy to get to. We had to go buy boats and tents and go up in the back of a UN C-130 and they landed on a dirt strip out in the middle of nowhere and we hauled the boat out and put the motor on it, got the tents and the food and the radio and got in and took off up the river for a whole day. We had about two inches of gunwale on each side. And as we come to the village of Ulang, they're so desperate for help that people are standing out on the riverbanks, waving and beckoning us to come. And they take us out behind the village and there are 400 fresh graves in that one village alone from the month before. It's a war zone. The north is coming down, dropping bombs. <laughs> they roll them out of the back of plains. The Christians in that village, you know what they did? They had a cross on top of their hut. Instead of the fertility pole that sticks up, they had turned it into a cross, kind of in your face to all these planes that were trying to kill Christians from the Muslim north and the Christian south. See, that's the kind of place where Jesus goes. Or, or let's go to Bosnia. Remember when the war was there? I had a sobering day when I got fitted for my bulletproof vest going in there. And your helmet, because the UN wouldn't let you fly in planes to go into that country unless you had that type of garb on. These are the places where Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, this is where we're going. Some remote corner of the world where you may be a missionary out in the middle of nowhere. John twelve twenty six says this, if you want to serve me, then follow me. Then you'll be where I am, ready to serve at a moment's notice. And then this promise, I love it. The Lord will honor and reward anyone who serves me. See, we want to be near enough to Christ that we can hear his heartbeat. We want to be near enough to Christ as we follow him that we can whisper in his ear, here am I, send me. I'm ready to follow. I'm ready to go wherever that may be, whatever it involves, no matter what the sacrifice, because I have had that unconditional surrender. I've had that point of denial. Your priorities are my priorities and I want to go with you. I believe this generation can complete the Great Commission. I think we're that close. I think it's going to take physicians and nurses and pharmacists to penetrate the 1040 window in those countries where it's so difficult for missionaries to get in. I believe this generation is waiting for a challenge, something that will demand their all, ready to storm the gates of hell, to take the gospel where God wants it to go. I believe that we desire to produce, pursue something bigger than ourselves, something that has significance. I believe young people are increasingly beyond the concept that they want to squander their lives in useless pursuits and mundane things. They want to make a difference. They've learned that life is about relationships. But they are going to make sure to offer the most important relationship to those who do not know God. We have this, this opportunity. We have the technology. We have the knowledge. We have the skills. Have you grabbed that vision, that passion, <laughs> that desire to, to change the world, to invest your life in something that's so much bigger than you? C.S. Lewis said this The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. I don't want that to be... I don't want to be indifferent to this world of needs. And I know you don't either. And we, at this conference, have been focused on that. And we're coming to this time of commitment when we can say, Lord, here am I. I'm willing to go. You're going to find, that you were given as you came in, and if not, there's some up here in the front, a card... Pull that out and take a look at it. On one side it says this, my commitment. Please let us know how God is leading you to go deeper in your commitment. Where's God calling you to? Maybe you don't know, but you know he's calling and you want to write that in. Maybe it's something that God has laid on your heart to pray for, a corner of this world, a need that you've heard, need for personnel, need for finances or whatever, something you want to learn about, you want to dig in and get deeper and learn more. and Or I want to support in some way, somebody that I've met here. I don't know what God's done in your life, but I know the most important thing He wants is you, is you. We're going to give you a few minutes to pray and think about that, to fill it out. And then I'm going to come up and we'll have a prayer and give you an opportunity to come forward and kneel at this altar. Let's pray before we do that. Heavenly Father, we can't imagine what your Holy Spirit is doing right now. The lives that will be affected in some corner of this world because of a commitment that's made today. I'll pray that those that are listening may hear your Spirit clearly and with boldness and with certainty. They may Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow wherever you lead. Give them the courage to make that decision right now.